Welcome to Tyranny Today. So two years have passed since uh, Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. It's probably time the West began to experience pangs of uh, painful remorse for not acting sooner. Whether it's remorse over military help for Ukraine or whether over sanctions aimed at Russia, it's all coming too little too late. Lawmakers in Germany's ruling coalition were last week set to vote on a motion that could finally push Chancellor Olaf Scholz over the line to deliver long-range precision Taurus cruise missiles to Ukraine. These German Taurus missiles have a greater range and sophistication than either the British Storm Shadow or French Scalp cruise missiles, which were delivered to Ukraine last year. They would be capable of reaching Moscow and evading most Russian anti-aircraft defenses. And yet, the motion pushed forward by the center-right CDU-CSU Christian Democratic Opposition Bloc fell well short of a majority of only 182 voting in favor and 480 against. It's essentially Olaf Scholz who blocked it, claiming that the weapon would allow Ukraine to hit Russian territory and thus risk escalating the conflict. How is Ukraine supposed not to lose this war if Russians can hit Ukrainian territory, but Ukraine may not reciprocate? This is a problem of all asymmetric alliances, where the security taker or borrower does not control the escalation ladder. By relying on allies, the security taker is essentially deprived of initiative, which the enemy will surely exploit at a time and place of its choosing. Another example of sour grapes comes from Biden's recent round of secondary sanctions against Russia. Biden signed a decree, an executive order, on December 22nd that basically told banks around the world, either or. What does it mean? It means that foreign financial institutions were warned that they would risk losing access to the U.S. financial system if they facilitated significant transactions relating to Russia's military industrial base. Giving the very broad definition of dual use, the term industrial base really incorporates just about anything. But this is essentially Russia's fault. Importing washing machines to extract semiconductors repurposed for missile production is one such example. But now, dear foreign bank, if you finance a washing machine going to wash Russia's dirty military laundry, so either you do that, finance trade and settle payments with Russia, or you do business with the global market. The result? Just as analysts were beginning to crow about Russian economy's amazing resilience, the country's partners are screaming. Three of China's largest banks have stopped accepting payments from sanctioned Russian financial institutions. And that's according to Russia's Izviestia. The decision was made by Chinese banks, which are the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, China Construction Bank and Bank of China, due to the risks of secondary sanctions from the United States. These state-owned banks rank as first, second and fourth in terms of assets in China. This was followed by panic in Turkey. Turkish banks, squeezed by Biden's executive order, have been unable to settle any trades with Russian counterparties. The result is that the brisk Russian-Turkish trade collapsed in January by 31% year-on-year. Putin is due to travel on a long-postponed trip to Ankara to meet with Erdogan, and this issue has become a serious thorn in the relations between Russia and its sanction-evading platform in Turkey. The question is, of course, why did Biden wait with this for almost two years? If there was a chance to strangle the Russian economy, why did he wait for so long? Victoria Nuland, the U.S. Undersecretary of State and an expert on Russia, 
has explained that the measure is like plugging gaps in a system exploited by wily Russians. Whack-a-mole. Maybe it's time we watch them all a bit closer, don't you think, Toria? Like, for example, watching those Chinese military transports that have recently landed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, Putin's closest ally. So, come on, just whack it. Whack it. Russia's route to the Middle East leads through Turkey, or at least it led through Turkey until Putin established Russia's muscled foothold in Syria nine years ago. Right now, Moscow is playing a game, trying to win over hearts and minds in the region. But the modality is questionable. Putin has invited a Hamas delegation to the Russian capital. What is it for? For thanking them? For channeling the world's attention away from his adventures and misadventures in Ukraine? If so, well done. Nobody in the Middle East has much love for Hamas, so it's up to Russia to come with love. Strangely, however, Moscow's statements regarding Israel's and Palestinian plight is rather centrist when compared to a rabidly Maoist statement that was planted by the Chinese delegation with the International Court of Justice. In a nearly 30-minute speech, Foreign Ministry Legal Advisor Ma Xinmin argued that Hamas's violent attack on Israeli civilians last October was in the name of resistance to foreign oppression. I kid you not. He called it armed struggle, as distinguished from acts of terrorism. Beijing really hit their, the tones unheard since Zhou Enlai's Algeria declaration some 51 years ago. China, this time, called Israel an alien nation occupying Palestine, referring to its existence with the leftist trope of colonial rule and calling Palestinian acts struggle for liberation. With the old Maoist verve, Beijing called for decolonization. This is somewhat quaint, because there are no colonies left in the world, unless, in addition to Palestine, we had all those nations that are still occupied by Russia, China, Iran, and maybe even Turkey. A good try, nonetheless. And, by the way, did I say Zhou Enlai? Well, he was not all that original. Already in 1920, Stalin and Trotsky agreed that they needed to stir Asian people against Western colonialism a communist dogma that is still alive and well, at least in Beijing. Jerusalem Post quoted a Hamas official named Osama Hamdan, who released a statement on this Chinese speech saying, We also appreciate the position expressed by the People's Republic of China and its emphasis on the legality of the occupied people's pursuit of self-determination by various means, including armed resistance, and the necessity not to confuse terrorism with the armed struggle practiced by the Palestinian people against the Zionist occupation. Come on, Israel, maybe it wasn't such a good idea selling all this military technology to China. Nor has Bibi's fawning on Putin since February 22 earned any blue points for Israel. But keep going, Bibi. You're making your country more isolated than ever. Let's return to Alexei Navalny's case for the moment. We learned from the Russian henchman that he had died of quote-unquote natural causes. Of course, it's quite natural to die in Arctic Gulag, so the statement is somewhat tautological. Two weeks since the news emerged, I'm still wondering what exactly led to his death. Just two days before his passing, we were shown a video with Navalny looking gaunt by, but visibly in good spirits, not someone really suffering on a deathbed. It's as if the henchman wanted to send us a message. Look, no hands, look, no hands. Alexei Navalny, deplored by many Russian Democrats at home and abroad, was a courageous figure. He had panache, sense of humor, grit, and a good handle on social media. 
He advocated free and fair elections, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. But some of his decisions also raised questions. For over three years since his voluntary return to Russia, I assume that there must have been a reason why Putin's regime decided to keep him alive. Navalny's anti-corruption videos were a real scoop, and also the immediate cause of his downfall. But his personal views on the future of Russia and Russian nationalism, or the question of Ukraine, were, let's say, less than kosher for those who believe that Russian imperialism needs to be actively combated. For too long, he was falling into a familiar trap of Russian opposition Democrats, unable to dissociate freedom from patriotism, where Russian patriotism is, first and foremost, imperial. This is a trap that goes back to the birth of Russia's independence political thought in the 19th century. Standing at the fork in the road, that tells you that you can be either free or patriotic, too many Democrats try instead to forge ahead through the thicket in the middle. And since Russian national identity developed only after the Tsarist Empire had already been built, the pull of neo-imperial patriotism is just too strong to resist. And then you really get lost in this Siberian thicket. Even if Navalny's views are said to have evolved over time, that early pro-imperialist vein didn't make much sense. Most aggressive empires are not thriving democracies internally, and nor was even Britain. At the height of its imperial power, only single digits in the British population could vote. Britain's universal suffrage was not introduced until 1928, long past Britain's zenith as an imperial power, and many years after many other European countries introduced universal suffrage. So, historically, the question of how you create a democracy while retaining an empire has never been properly answered. Not in Algeria, not in Kenya, and not in Chechnya. My assumption two years ago was that the Siloviki and the oligarchs may one day need an acceptable face, a lipstick to put on the bear that, following the blood-stained campaign in Ukraine, may need to redirect its advances back to the West. But if they decided to kill Navalny nonetheless, then it means that such a plan is off the table. If it was a plan in the first place, of course. The second question is why Navalny returned to Russia after being poisoned. And there are two theories here. One is that he was wrongly advised by one of the pro-democratic media personalities that maintained links to the Kremlin. According to his version, Navalny did, in fact, believe that he had what Russians called Krisha, a cover, which goes some way towards our reading of the role that the regime may have reserved for him initially. But there is another version of the events. It is that Navalny critically misread the wind of times and saw himself as a giant that would one day emerge from the dungeon like an arctic Mandela. This may betray his optimism, without which he would have never achieved what he did, but also his naivete, and frankly, poor reading of history. Contemporary Russia has very little to do with the apartheid-era South Africa. Yes, South Africa was involved in wars in neighboring countries, partly because it feared communist expansionism, in particular in Angola, where tens of thousands of Cuban troops were amassed to promote Soviet interests on the cheap. I had this colleague in South Africa who tried to avoid being sent to a front line and feigned a problem with his hearing. An Afrikaner sergeant at the medical commission dismissed my colleague's worries, saying, Don't worry, son. We'll put you in artillery. You won't hear anything. So that's what the South African regime was. Insecure, annoyed by white Rhodesians' inability to recognize the right moment to clinch a deal, troubled by the need to import black labor from Bantustans, but keeping that labor in precarious conditions, without any rights to public services. 
somewhat similarly to what the Chinese laborers have been going through in the last three decades without a hukou, the right to urban abode. And with the exception of the tragic events of 1976, South Africa remained a magnet for immigration, including white immigration, and not a country hemorrhaging native population like Russia today. When in 1978 P.W. Balta replaced the ideological leadership of John Foster, he adopted a more pragmatic approach, loosening the most grotesque elements of the segregation laws, such as the ban on interracial sex, for example. Only then, in 1980, the sing-sing of Free Melson Mandela started, like the one I remember back then from the burnout bunch of protesters enveloped in cannabis stench just off South Africa House near Trafalgar Square in London. Finally, in July 1989, P.W. Botta met in secrecy with Mandela. I have never met Botta, but I did have the honor of meeting Mandela. In his memoirs, Mandela said that he expected Botta to be a grim, cantankerous figure. None of that. Apparently, according to Mandela, Botta walked towards him from the opposite side of the room, his hand outstretched, and was truly charming, pouring tea for the freedom fighter. Did Navalny really expect Putin to pour his tea? And how would that end? For all the horrors of the apartheid regime, there is no comparison to Russia, a brutal place that deals with its insecurity syndrome through permanent expansion externally and through crushing of dissent internally. The apartheid regime relaxed the grip when the communist empire, so regretted by Putin, began to unravel. Without the collapse of the communist ogre, the thrill of South Africa's first free election in 1994 would have probably never happened, and I'm not even sure if Ghana, Taiwan, Indonesia, Paraguay, or South Korea would be democracies today. But that trend is long over. This is not how the world has been evolving in the last 20 years. Navalny's moment certainly did not come. Rather than Mandela, he's now a Stephen Biko, the bright dropout from a medical school beaten to death by white prison guards in 1977. Oh, Biko, Biko... Because, because, il a moja, il a moja, the man is dead, the man is dead. Peter Gabriel, ladies and gentlemen, or if you wish, Robert Wyatt, everyone's favorite communist singer. Ah, yes, Robert Wyatt, not Pete Seeger. So rather than a Mandela to take over from the putrefying regime, the clique in Moscow may be preparing someone else, like uh, Nikolai Patrushev's son, Dmitry who, very truly accidentally, is a minister of agriculture of the Russian Federation, or maybe Sergei Narishkin, head of Foreign Intelligence Service. I think it's symptomatic of this era, so tragically misread by Navalny, that no condemnation for the killing came from the world's largest democracies, not from India, not from Brazil, of course, and not from Indonesia, where the newly elected president is said to be a fanatical supporter of President Putin. Not a single comment from Trump either, Remember, Trump, normally so creative with insulting language and gutter-level coinages or nicknames, has curiously never uttered a single criticism of the Russian strongman. No, 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 no. He has praised Putin as strong and smart. The prospect of Putin's orange friend returning to the White House is concentrating many minds in Europe. And not only in Europe. Recall that when Trump was in power last time, Beijing and Europe were in constant flirtation mode. Between 2016 and 2020, China used every meeting to pat Europe on the back for talking up strategic autonomy. When Xi Jinping came to Davos in 2017, 
he made his Trump-weary audience almost orgasmic with his pledge of allegedly open markets. This is when Berlin deepened its dependency on the automotive trade with China and 5G technology, not to mention the solar panel industry, which is now dying in Saxony with a slow Chinese death of 100 cuts. Back then, Italy even signed the Belt and Road Agreement with Beijing, hoping for investment in exchange of rhetorical favors, until the mesalliance was killed by Giorgia Meloni last year. And the European Union almost clinched a massive investment agreement with China just days before Biden came to power, which luckily was never ratified, ostensibly because of slave labor in Xinjiang and because of Beijing's destruction of Hong Kong. And so, Hamas's friends from Beijing are already putting a new makeup, readying to schmooze around Brussels just as European officials scamper around aimlessly under the orange menace. Already this year, China's foreign policy supremo Wang Yi sounded a much more conciliatory note at the security conference in Munich. For now, nobody in Europe is buying it, because there's just too big a gap between China's diplomatic poetry and its actions. But with Russia off-limits, and the Trumpian America reducing its role as a stabilizer on the European continent, there will certainly be voices in Western Europe calling for Beijing to provide a role of balancer. I'm not really clear what bandwagoning with China would mean for Europe. Instead, maybe it's time Europe finally stood up, and coalesced around the common foreign policy and joint redevelopment of military capacity. Several weeks ago, I posited that the other Donald, Donald Tusk, would have a key role to play here, so it was intriguing to see him flanking Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron in an effort to rejig the Weimar Triangle, a continental east-west axis that Zbigniew Brzezinski believed also needed Ukraine to properly build a security perimeter in Europe. We'll see where this goes, because I remain convinced that if Robert Taft's ghost does prevail in November and the US isolationists win the day, then Europe's eastern flank will also need a complementary north-south axis, combining Finland's land army with Swedish Navy and Air Force, Danish Straits lockups, and the very robust belt defending the freedoms of the three Baltic countries as well as Poland and Romania. This area, that Putin obsesses about, is an intermarum stretching from Gdansk and Klaipeda ports on the Baltic Sea, to Odessa and Constanza on Black Sea's shores. This will be a painful process for the Democrats who are still in power in Eastern Europe and who clinched freedom under the giants of the 1980s. And I don't mean Duran Duran or Mike Tyson. I mean Ronald Reagan and John Paul II. Here's one quote from Reagan that has vanished from GOP's curriculum. He said, We in America have learned bitter lessons from two world wars. It is better to be here in Europe, ready to protect the peace, than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. We've learned that isolationism never was, and never will be, an acceptable response to tyrannical governments, with an expansionist intent. If any younger listeners need a refresher on who Ronald Reagan was, just head straight to downtown Warsaw to see his monument. It's in front of the U.S. Embassy, but it's not inside the U.S. compound, it's facing it from the park across the street. It's not the same. It's not like the monument to Matteo Ricci, a Jesuit priest who taught astronomy at the court of the Ming dynasty in China, but whose statue stands only inside the Italian consulate in Shanghai. Chinese communists are not very grateful for foreign help, apparently. You will find commemoration of Matteo Ricci in Taiwan, in Macau, in Korea, in the Philippines, Indonesia and for now even in Hong Kong as well, but not in mainland China. At least Eastern Europeans were thankful for how America squeezed out 
Soviet colonialists. And since we're talking about sculptures again, let's return to Senegal, a place I referred to two weeks ago because of North Korean sculptures that tower over some African capitals. This time, however, the reason is a bit less artistic. So, Senegal. The only African country that emerged from the colonial era with a solid, Western-educated elite that didn't immediately sought to enrich itself in the most ostentatious manner. An outlier, in other words. I've been to Senegal several times, but I knew the country long before I set my foot there for the first time. Back in my days as a student at a francophone university, many of my fellow dorm mates were Senegalese. I got to know their food, I learned to speak with their accent, I was invited into their hopes and their dreams. We shared passion for African soccer. We were also young, and my mate's burgeoning sexuality of single black man in a white-dominated society had the perverse color of a reverse colonial conquest. They used to show me letters from their buddies back home, incredulous that students in Europe could sleep with a white woman, a dream of many an African man. One of such ambitious men was Patrice Lumumba, a failed pro-Soviet leader of Congo Kinshasa whose visit to Washington was marked by a hectic search for a blonde that he could spend a night with. Much worse, self-aggrandizing ambitions of the first generation of wanton African leaders were repeated across the entire continent, from the first megalomaniac leader of Ghana to the monstrous tyrant of Central African Republic to the saddest of Uganda and the butcher of Ethiopia. Just about everywhere you looked, gauls grabbed power and hung onto it by hook or by crook, everywhere except in Senegal. Leopold Senghor, the country's first president, was what colonial powers hoped to achieve, a highly educated black westerner ethnically rooted on the black continent. An accomplished poet, Senghor remembered what the ambition of his generation was, to become a photographic negative of the colonizers, a black-skinned Frenchman. He was a Catholic and helped draft the constitution of the Fourth French Republic. He advocated political federation with the French metropole and envisaged the Confederation of Western Nations, a project that quickly crashed against the particularist ambitions of local chieftains. As the president of Senegal, he did something unthinkable. He opened up politics to opposition. He also refused to nationalize French businesses and actually oversaw increased immigration into Senegal from France after the independence. After his retirement, he was acclaimed as one of the immortals of Académie Française. He coined the term la négritude, or blackness. Here's an excerpt from his poem entitled Ma Négritude, My Blackness. Ma négritude, point ne sommeil de la race, mais un soleil de l'âme. Ma négritude, vue et vie. Ma négritude est truelle à l'amant, et lance au point. Which translates roughly into My Blackness is not the sleep of the race, is the sun of the soul, my blackness seen and lived, my blackness, a trowel in hand, a spear in my fist. Sango left more than poignant verses. His country never missed a presidential election. Incredibly, it has never gone through a coup d'etat. Since the 1980s, Senegal has been a multi-party democracy with regular changes of government. I remember well my measured pace along noisy, staccatoed streets of Dakar, where locals tend to stop you in the streets with their annoying tss, monsieur, tss. I therefore learned to echo their tss with little else to offer. Once a South African colleague of mine, tired of the hawkers, who were trying to sell him some absurd trinkets, turned the tables on them, offering to sell them his pen for a fortune. 
and so they scampered away. From Dakar, a boat full of drummers chanting some ancestral rhythms took me to Ile de Gorée. It's here where you can visit the narrow gate through which slaves were taken across the Atlantic. It is much smaller than the eerie welcoming gate in Charleston, South Carolina, which was the entrance to hell for those who survived the journey. But before left-wing fanatics begin to pull down old statues, finger-pointing at the Western culture as the only culprit of the history's atrocities, ask yourself why so many black people live today in the Western world, from the sambas of Rio de Janeiro through the reggae of Jamaica, John Canoe of the Bahamas, and the electric blues of Chicago. Some 10.7 million people were brought to life to the Western Hemisphere between 1619 and 1860. Some 100 million, so 10 times more, live today in the New World, with 75% of them in the United States, Brazil, and Haiti. But African slave trade also thrived in the Muslim world since the 7th century and involved about 15 million people, of which some 8.5 million were transported during exactly the same time as the transatlantic slave trade thrived. But if so, where are the 100 million black descendants in the Middle East? They are hardly present because most male slaves sold in the markets of the Islamic world were castrated. So before you join the wokish crowd pulling down the statues and spit on the Western culture of white privilege, here is something to chew on. But why am I reminiscing about Senegal, such a beacon of West African democracy on a podcast devoted to tyranny? Three weeks before the elections were due to take place last Sunday, the two-term president, Macky Sall, announced that the elections will be postponed till December. Popular opposition leader Usman Sonko was anyway unlikely to contest the vote following his conviction on criminal charges, leaving thus Prime Minister Amadou Ba, a former tax inspector and the president's handpicked successor, as the frontrunner. When the election was postponed, the government acted like any other frightened regime. The internet was switched off and riot police deployed in the streets. I can take all the surrounding mess. Coup d'etat in Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Guinea, Chad, Sudan, Gabon, you name it. Wars and near wars between Mali and Algeria, Algeria and Morocco, Ethiopia and Somalia. Zero political alternates in Rwanda, Uganda or Cameroon. But Senegal? S'il vous plaît, ne faites pas ça. Unfortunately, the deterioration in terms of civil liberties coincides with Senegal becoming a petro-state. The first production from BP's $4.8 billion Gantortu Achmaim gas field is expected sometime this year, while Woodside Energy Group sees crude oil from Sangomar project flowing from already June. So this does not bode well for the country. Think Nigeria. Still, I'm hopeful. The Constitutional Court called the delay in elections unconstitutional, and the Senegalese president pledged to step down at the end of his term on April 2nd. Maybe Sangor's poetic spirit still watches over Senegal's tormented souls. I'm leaving you with this hope this time. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.